Hey, Space Junk fans, Tony Darnell here. And before I get started with today's episode, I want to let you know about a special thank you that we've put together for all listeners of our humble podcast. If you go to OPT's website, enter the word Space Junk at the checkout, you will get a $15 discount on a purchase of $100 or more. And you can use it for anything you buy on OPT's website, from accessories that you've been wanting to get to complete your telescope or anything else that might help you enjoy your night under the stars. So enter Space Junk, that's one word and all caps, when you check out at OPT's website to get the discount. And thank you from all of us at Space Junk. In today's episode, Dustin and I talked with Robert Reeves. He is a really interesting guy. Among other things, he is an amateur astronomer. He has also written several books. One of them is called The Superpower Space Race, an explosive rivalry through the solar system. He's also written several books on astrophotography. He's very good friends with the astronaut Don Pettit, who is a very interesting character in and of himself. And so Dustin and I sat down and talked with Robert Reeves, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Robert, you're the you're the one that wrote the book on all this stuff. You're the one that has all the uh, the information here to talk about. You know, it's not us. It's not us that you have to to keep well, from throwing it the all out there. Amazing thing about writing a book is you write it all down on paper, you get it printed, and it kind of vanishes out of your brain, and you go out and make <laughs> the same dumb mistakes that everybody else does. So you go back and read your own book to yeah. kind of resituate. Yeah, because uh, I've been doing the moon now for, oh gosh, uh, years and years, and uh, drifted away from deep sky astrophotography and uh, saw an interesting opportunity pop up about a week ago or so ago. So I drug out the GM8 and my uh, TV60IS and got it dusted off last weekend, got it fired up, and uh, realized I had no clue how to run the auto guider. So I'm learning all over again, just like everybody else. <laughs> what the, the moon is what really has your attention. You did 365 days of the moon, right? Yeah, that's a little program that, well, I unofficially call it that. Uh, people ask me, is that my website? No, the uh, um, uh, all of these moon pictures are posted on my personal uh, Facebook page uh, under Robert Reeves. I really should create a 365 Days of the Moon Facebook page and transfer some of this stuff over there. But, uh, you know, life gets in the way. Uh, you know, um, people think I'm retired. Far from it. I'm still working full time and... Got my finger in many pies, so uh, all I need is 28 hours a day. <laughs> yeah, that's when I often hear that with people who, uh, who, who who say they're retired. That's when things get really busy. Uh, is yep. that retired, so. Well, that uh, uh, pesky little nine to five gets in the way, but uh, uh, we we got to got to eat and pay the bills. Well, you're but you're all over the place, uh, though. You know, we just saw you in New York. Um, we had dinner with you and Don Pettit, the astronaut yeah, from the ISS. And so. then, uh, yeah, a week later, I was at uh, the National Science Teachers Association convention in uh, St. Louis. Uh, then a little later than that, I was at the Texas Star Party. 
uh, up in Seattle for the 50th anniversary of Apollo, because uh, that's where they have the Columbia now. It's not at the uh, Air and Space Museum in Washington. It wow. is currently in um, in Seattle at the Museum of Flight. So I did a couple of programs up there. It was quite delightful. And then uh, two weeks later, I'm over in Tucson at Space Fest, and guess who I bump into in the middle of the art field? Yeah, wow. <laughs> it was it was nice to see you there. It was nice. To, you know, I was only there for that evening. I, I flew into Tucson that morning and left the uh, the following morning pretty early. I had to get out to Pennsylvania. But um, yeah. yeah, I had no idea that you were going to be there. And honestly, I didn't know I was going to be there until a few days before. Hmm. But yeah, uh, what did you think their, about Space their first Fest? speaker the next morning? What did you think about the event? Um, well, I've never been to Space Fest before, but uh, uh, Kelsey is uh, uh, Kelsey Poor, the lady of Ramrods. It now uh, was uh, <clears throat> deliberately adding more astronomy and space science talks to it. Uh, so I felt very much at home. Uh, I could go from one talk to another and feel very much like I was at a regular astronomy convention, and right. then go out and rub rub shoulders with people who have walked on the moon. It was rather amazing. Yeah, it it really is. It's um I thought it was really well done. You know, it was very comfortable. The the pla the place they chose, that resort it was in was just really nice. And they said they had like the whole resort was booked for that event too. Which is amazing. Mm, I know there, that there that were civilians roaming around, but uh I think they, they pretty much filled up what was left and then there was an overflow to another hotel. So it was extremely um um successful event. Uh I haven't heard a single person grouse about anything and uh i thought it was very well run and uh, i look forward to um, hopefully helping them out in the future with with more talks <laughs> i'm sure they're going to ask you to you know that night they were walking around with a tray of um shots of some kind of liquor and giving those shots to everybody there i was just like man these these astronomers are getting wild tonight <laughs> oh that yeah that was the the uh, nightly te tequila thing where they do that toast out on the uh, on the patio they did that yeah, every hotel, night, huh? Yeah, the hotel does that. Yeah, that wasn't part of Space Fest. The hotel does that. And uh, uh, I thought it was a real nice touch. Uh, so they twisted your arm into taking shots, huh? Yeah, yeah a little, little little, bit of uh, camaraderie out there. and uh, uh-huh. It's a nice way to end the evening, right? <laughs> a couple of shots. Or the well, beginning of it. Or, or the, the beginning, beginning of the evening. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. sure when. The <laughs> yeah, that's how they kick off the event. They're like, all right. Oh, was that what, okay, that was early in the evening. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was taking notes, though, because uh, I help run the Texas Star Party and uh, always looking for new speakers. In fact, I poached one of their speakers, Dan Durda. He's all excited about uh, possibly uh, coming over and talking at the Texas Star Party next year. So uh, nice. always, always fishing for new faces. Well, yeah, that's where we had a chance to uh, to get you on here. So, again, thanks for coming on, Robert. We have so much to uh, to talk about. I mean, you've been doing this. Uh, how long have you been doing this? Like almost 60 years? Yeah, I think, I think the, I started tinkering around with it consciously, you know, deliberately uh, looking up uh, with a little Gilbert three-inch telescope I got for Christmas in 1958. Uh, took my first uh, attempt at a moon picture in 1959 and uh, finally succeeded in uh, March of 1961 when I got a, a four-inch criterion reflector and uh, um, self-invented the technique of afocal astrophotography and uh, photographed a lunar eclipse in March of 1961 and I've uh, been tinkering with it in various forms or fashions ever since. 
afocal, that's where it's just the uh, the, yeah, the you, camera mounted yeah. in the eyepiece with no yeah. or mounted in the eyepiece holder. Well, no, uh, the eyepiece is in place. The uh, telescope oh, is focused. Okay. Telescope is focused at infinity. The camera is focused at infinity. Uh, you kind of hope like heck that you're aiming in the right direction and uh, snap, and then you develop the film and find out whether you succeeded or not. A little bit different than the old day than we do now. Now we just hold a cell phone up to it and we can see whether or not right. we're aimed in the eyepiece, push the button, and people walk off of the cell phone image of the moon not knowing that they've just exceeded the quality of 90% of the work I've done in my entire life. I know. <laughs> well, I used to call that eyepiece projection. That was what I call it. That's why I was confused by the term. Yeah, well, the... well you, yeah, the eyepiece projection, you have no lens on the camera, and the eyepiece is projecting directly onto the focal plane of the camera. Yeah, right. And so what this setup has the lens in place? Yes. Yeah, okay, the, sorry. Mm, All right. The, yeah, 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 that I've never tried. That always required some kind of... Uh, serious mounting system for the camera yeah, that I never bracket. seem to have. So, yeah. yeah well, bracket. it's the same thing as now what we have nowadays. We've seen these little brackets that clamp onto the eyepiece of a telescope and you can hold your digital camera over the eyepiece and the, the lens stares down into the telescope and snap away. So it's still the same system. So how do you feel about that? Nowadays, what used to take a lot of effort, time to set up, balance the telescope, get everything in focus. And then you, once you took your image, you had to go and develop the film. Now yep. somebody could just walk up to your camera or to your telescope eyepiece, click it, click their, their smartphone on top and walk away with a nice picture of the moon. Here we go. Tony's trying to make him in. Here we go. It makes me delighted that we've had uh, all this progress and now more people can enjoy this. But um, there was a time, what, oh, I'm thinking probably 20 years ago that uh, Dennis Chichico came out to the Texas Star Party. Uh, this was before digital. Uh, we had not transition that he was the editor yet. of astronomy was that right uh, astronomy no, magazine? Uh, no the competition sky and telescope oh sky and tell i knew it was one of them i couldn't remember which one okay and uh he said at the time uh, seriously and i believe him that uh, back then you could count the number of good astrophotographers on the fingers of your hands it's true it's true yeah and nowadays there's thousands of them literally thousands yeah. of them in the digital era. So I'm utterly delighted that uh, this kind of progress is going on. And uh, of course, I've I wrote, you know, the introduction to, well, first the, the book Whitefield Astrophotography, which kind of closed out the film era. And then I did the uh, introduction to digital astrophotography and followed that with introduction to webcam astrophotography. I like to think that those books helped train this entire generation of really excellent astrophotographers. And at the Texas Star Party, one of the finest compliments I have ever received in my astronomical life was from Babak Trafeshi. And um, uh, if you know anything about the genre of nightscape photography, you know who he is. I'm trying to uh, visualize the, the name and I don't, I can't seem to recall it, but uh, he does nightscapes. Yes, he does. Uh, he's, okay. he's the founder of the world at night uh, that specializes in uh, combining um, terrestrial and celestial photography. Anyway, uh, cutting to the chase <clears throat> at the Texas Star Party is uh, my keynote speaker. And we went after afterwards and uh, did nightscape photography up at McDonald Observatory for pretty much the rest of the evening. And he confided in me that back when he was a student in college, uh, they translated my book, 
a wide field astrophotography into Farsi and used it as a textbook to learn astrophotography in Iran. And that's how he got started in it. Now oh, he's that had of, to feel good. Oh, it did. Uh, the, to to, to cool, see yeah. that my my little my little uh, pebble that I threw into a pond created ripples that affected people of that caliber. It really made me feel good. So you said your wide field astrophotography book closed out the film era. This came out, I assume, sometime in the early nineties. Yeah, nineteen ninety nine or. 2000, depending upon how you... Uh, okay, so you, you really, the, 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 the end of the film era, was that late? I always look at it as sort of the mid-90s was sort of when film kind of died out, but it was you, yeah, it was closer to the, the, the small, to the 21st uh, century. The small pocket-style digital cameras were becoming popular, but uh, the, the DSLR that uh, was um, a good, viable astrophotography substitute for a film camera. Uh, those didn't uh, really get going until just after the turn of the, uh, of the uh, millennium. So um, wide field okay. astrophotography came out, uh, I think it's copyright date 2000, I think. I have to look at it again. Um, but uh, within two or three years, film was going downhill rapidly. Uh, digital right. was making inroads far faster than we expected and uh finally do you miss uh, film do you um, miss it no <laughs> <laughs> i don't think anybody does <laughs> no though well, what i can do with my canon 6d nowadays by accident just just blows away everything i could do on purpose with film the only one thing i do regret is that uh, um, I, I did enjoy working with the uh eight inch spit camera um which was a uh, uh. 300 millimeter f1.5 uh, very flat field extraordinarily fast camera and uh, i've always had a kinship with uh, the palomar sky survey um, i remember back in the 1950s late 50s i believe it was the august of 1957 issue of national geographic where uh, they were talking about the palomar uh, National Geographic, they collaborated uh, Sky Survey using the 48-inch MIP. And I looked at those pictures in the, in the magazine, and I was just in awe of what I saw. The depth of, of space, the almost three-dimensional appearance of how the stars just went on forever. Uh, that really, really affected me, even though I was uh, 1957, I was 10 years old. And uh, finally, I got a, a Schmidt camera in 1978, and uh, very much enjoyed doing Milky Way mosaics with it. Uh, it was a tedious process. Each exposure was 40 minutes long, hand-guided. Uh, you had to have an iron butt to put up with that because you had to sit there that entire time. <laughs> For folks who don't know what that's like, you what, what you do is you sit behind an eyepiece, probably an illuminated reticle, Correct. something that's red that you can see, and right. it's off-axis, so you're picking out a little bit of light from the image plane and you're right. you, hopefully you've got a guide star in there you don't always <laughs> get them and then and then you sit there and with the little telescope uh corrector yeah uh, the push buttons. and you just and you just push buttons back and forth and keep that star centered how long did yeah. you sit there doing that 40 minutes a shot 40 minutes that's right and i think edwin hubble did a little bit of that as well when he was sitting at the, <laughs> well that's kind of uh, the spectrograph that's kind of the I same thing i'm pain. doing now right i mean whenever i just are you hit... are you sitting but i thought i well, thought you just turned it off yeah turned it on and... i mean i w i wake up you know i uh i hit run and then i go back to sleep 
and then I wake up and I have all my data. So it's like the oh, same. Oh yeah, that's the same. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You feel Dustin feels the pain there. Yeah. I feel yes. your pain. I know exactly yeah, what yeah. you're going through. <laughs> it's it's yeah. how comfy his bed is. Is what you yeah. know, really the, the 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 factor there. Yeah. Sometimes it's I use too hard a pillow talk. and you know <laughs> too hard yeah, a pillow. Yes. I have been known to sleep by the telescope quite soundly while it's doing its thing these days. Uh, uh, I, well, a majority of my f- photography is just uh, wide field work using uh, star trackers. Uh, used to be the AstroTrack, but now it's uh, um, the uh, Star Adventures. And, yeah, those uh, are great. I'll, I love the Star I'll, Adventure. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let it grind along for an hour and just saw logs right by the telescope and uh, uh, having a grand time. So, uh, guiding is nothing that i miss yeah so uh this is something that i wanted to ask i've been meaning to ask dustin as well so let me get this to both of you so you were you you mentioned earlier robert that on back in the sky until days or the film days you could you could count the number of really good astrophotographers on the fingers of your hands correct what and this is for both of you what distinguishes astrophotographers today because a lot of people can take some pretty decent photos now with just modest equipment. Yes, they can. And we've talked, we, what is what is it about today's astrophotographers that really make them stand out? What are the qualities? Is it just a matter of equipment? What is it? No, they've also got to have an artistic eye. They've got to have uh, the technical skill to process the image so that uh, it is correctly presented uh, uh, there, there's a certain amount of subjectivity to a deep sky photograph. What is the actual color of this nebula? And our, if we're using uh, narrowband filters, well, we're not going to have the correct uh, uh, color to begin with, but are we presenting it in a pleasing manner that is artistic and and uh, and um, captures our heart? Um, there's a lot of skill wrapped up in that and not everybody has that you you, you can read a tutorial go out set up your telescope point at uh, an object grind along at it uh, fiddle around with with software and you know if you you know have a, a long enough lifespan you can figure out pics inside otherwise you better stick with photoshop uh and uh, come oh, up long with, enough life with some, <laughs> Well, at my age, I, I I made a conscious decision that I will be dead before I figure out Pick's insight. So uh, I'm going to pass that one by. But uh, yeah. uh, the proper skill level uh, to to present this thing in a um, in a in a pleasing manner and in a manner which conveys uh, a some degree of science. Uh, the sky is as much art as it is science. The same with the moon. The moon is as much art as it is science. So in this day of Instagram, where this is where Dustin lives, um, he lives, you know, among the astrophotographers who post there. Uh, How would you answer that, Dustin? Uh, What distinguishes astrophotographers now? Man, I um, so I I get a lot of flack for this, actually. I think that among the hardcore astrophotographer community, um, they probably wouldn't look at a lot of the stuff I post as like that as as real astrophotography you know even though you know a lot of these images Why not? um i mean cuz i don't think it comes down to like what you're shooting or the data or the time investment or i mean there're very few people that are shooting 90 hour images i can tell you that you know um so it's not that any of it would have less data or anything like that it's that like i kind of avoid a lot of the things that um that the hardcore astrophotographers appreciate. Like, 
for instance, I get people that come to some of my talks when I do simple imaging talks where I try to, you know, shortcut the whole process and say, you know what, this is the way it used to be done. You can skip this step. You don't have to spend 12 hours editing this image. You know, if you want them to look like what I'm posting or, you know, you can probably do better because I'm not a very artistic person, you know. I spend maybe five, 10 minutes processing and most of it's on my cell phone, you know, but because of that, you've got some things that happen. You get some ringing in the stars and obviously you can, you can fix all of that, but I don't really take the time to, I just edit it on the Instagram app or, you know, on Snapseed, the free Google app and um, let it fly, you know, cause for me, it's just about getting people excited about space and, and giving some people something to look at that's colorful and really shows what's out there. But for a lot of people, it's not that. It's about, you know, how technically perfect is this image? You know, are all of the stars perfect across the whole image? And like, I just, I don't care. I don't think that people look at that. For me, it's like, hey, is this a picture that will get people excited? And that's the whole point. And I think that anybody that's going out and even using a cell phone, taking pictures of the moon through a telescope, just holding it up to the eyepiece anymore, I think that's astrophotography. And I don't, I think that old school mindset is dying off and it's dying off like very quickly that, you know, this isn't real because you're not doing it the way we did and you're not bleeding for it the way we did. It's like, it's like, well, I mean, that's cute. That's cute. But we got, I, yeah, I used to walk 12 miles yeah. in the snow. And but, I you know, the truth is we got, we've got 12 year olds now taking images that a lot of, a lot of the people that are so hardcore could not themselves take. And it's like, that's good. This is good. This is progress this is evolution this is people being embracing the technology and a lot of the work yeah. is done for you we're, now. we're and losing I, dark sky but we're gaining people who have the uh the skill to produce pleasing images now i've always yeah, said that exactly. uh, i don't try to take pictures to satisfy anybody except myself you have a very different mindset about about all of this, though, I mean, your your objective is now and always has been right when you talk to me about it, at least is like to share this with people and help people be better at their process, at their enjoyment and um, or understand what the, uh, the the target is that I'm trying to illustrate. Right. Um, you know, my moon photography is as much about educating people about the the, the geology and features and formation and uh uh, evolution of the moon as it is about the photography itself. Much of the time I, uh, well, I won't say much of the time, let me digress. I get many, many compliments on my moon pictures, but there's always the person who pops up says way over-processed. Right. And, uh, You're going to get that. They may have a point. They may have a point, but I, uh, I do hammer on these images to, in some cases, show the tiniest details possible. And it does jack up the contrast to some extent, makes the image look a little unnatural. My vision of the moon photographically is, is kind of anchored in the old lunar orbiter photographs from the late 1960s. Those were very high contrast pictures um, taken on film, scanned on, on board the spacecraft, radioed back to Earth and printed out as facsimiles. They were very high contrast images. And my mind's eye, that's how I still see the moon, although that's not how it appears in an eyepiece. So we all have our own image of what we're, we're seeing in the sky. And uh, yeah. they're not all the same. Because the moon is an extended object, it's much, much bigger than a point source, and it covers a frame uh, quite 
fully. <laughs> when yeah. you process something like that, do you worry about things like you know, variations along the image plane, like you know, are things like point spread functions and things like that changing throughout where the where the where the image where the pixels are? And do you, when you go to process these images, do you do anything locally, or do you just do it to the moon as a whole? Like if you apply an edge filter, I don't know, let's say a Sobel filter to the whole moon, or do you just do you dive into certain areas to bring out that? I work with the entire image as far as sharpening. Um, I only on the moon. I only apply. Um, well, I should begin at the beginning. I capture in uh, Fire Capture, which does no processing. It just captures the video. And then I import the video into Auto Stacker, and it stacks everything into, uh, like I will do a 5,000 frame video. It's a, a little over 11 gigabytes. And that'll boil down to one single TIFF image in Auto Stacker. And you can uh, adjust Auto Stacker to do a certain degree of sharpening. And the image comes out. Looking reasonably good, but uh, it's still slightly soft. Then I'll take it into Photoshop. And uh, a couple of iterations ago, they came up with this wonderful uh, option in the uh, filters drop down menu. Uh, under the sharpen menu, it's called, uh, uh, okay, I'm going to get a blank spot in my mind right now. It's just as I want to pull it up. Um, oh, my God, it's embarrassing. Let me actually start Photoshop and. <laughs> And uh, yeah. well, yeah, I think I know what you mean. They have added a lot of a uh, lot of good tools like that. Uh, they have a healing tool as well in Photoshop that that takes care of a lot of uh, mistakes and things of, of terrestrial photos. And yeah. I was just, I guess, what, where I was going with that question was, I just kind of wanted to know is if, let's say, you've got this overall quite nice picture of the moon, but because it's so big, and because there's differences in your telescope optics and in the atmosphere that's between when the, and I, and I understand that when you go to stack all these, a lot of these things are smeared out or averaged out over many images and that you can select only the best of the best from your Correct. video. Correct. But I just, I just wonder that even so, uh, does there, is there like a crater or a, a region on the moon that ends up being a little funky that you've got to deal with in a separate way? Or do you just treat the whole moon when you're processing? And it sounds like you just do the whole moon. Yeah, well, generally, the, 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 the field of view that I have is uh, traditionally, well, I'm shooting at 4,000 millimeter focal length with a uh, planetary camera, so I'm seeing just a tiny portion of the moon. Uh, it would probably take, wild guess, 20 frames to uh, uh, piece together the entire moon. And uh, if I'm doing a mosaic... In a mosaic, think, you mean? Yeah. In a, yeah, in a mosaic? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't always do that. Uh, some, most of the time I'm concentrating on individual uh, features. But if I do a mosaic, uh, I lock the exposure so that it's fixed. It doesn't uh, vary automatically from bright areas to dark areas. Uh, I will expose for the edge, the, the leading edge of the moon, the limb, the most brightly lit part, and get that exposed properly. And then the mosaic works its way over toward the uh, Terminator. We end up with a... Um, underexposed area and i have to work with that in photoshop to bring that up it's far easier to bring up an uh, underexposed area uh in a digital image than it is to uh beat down a a, a blown out highlight you know once yeah, that's for sure. once your pixels are saturated there's nothing there so uh, right you already uh, ruined it yeah so there is uh a work done that way uh um the uh, i've got photoshop up i'm going to find that 
And you're going to find that filter, aren't you? <laughs> ah, shake reduction. That's what it is. It's called shake reduction. And uh, this <laughs> that that is the uh, key to making me look better than I am. That shake reduction filter does wonders on moon images. It desmears um, things a little bit? Yeah, is that what well, it does? Well, yeah, yeah the, the image is just slightly fuzzy in kind of all directions. It's just... Like, uh -huh. it's just not 100% sharp. And uh, that shake reduction filter will, uh, it's like jacking your, your scene conditions up two levels on the Bortle scale. So uh, it's a very useful nice. tool. Okay. Uh, look at that. Yeah. So, Robert, it, you're, for, you're a teacher at heart. Like, this is what you do, right? I mean, not only have you actually taught astronomy, but you've also written, what, I mean, like 100 or more articles for Astronomy Magazine uh, and others? Uh, well, the count is over 250 right now 250. And, uh, or, and 200, um, newspaper columns as well. Wow. One of which so, is due this weekend. Hmm. Oh, well, this is just in, <laughs> so, I mean, is it, so tell me about you, when you taught astronomy, do you still teach astronomy? Is that what you're doing now? No, or? no, that, that was, uh, oh gosh, 20 years ago that I did that. And that was still in Texas, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, um, at a school. Well, actually, at the school I graduated from high school in back in 1965, um, it's about eight blocks from here. So, well, it wasn't that far away. What's it like uh, teaching astronomy? Is it the same kind of, I mean, when you're doing it professionally, is it the same kind of uh, feeling that it is at like star parties, teaching people that come out just for that? Or do you feel like it's more forced because they're not there because they really want to be, but more because it's... In my case, the, it was an elective. They were there because they wanted to. Oh, nice. And yeah. um, uh, they were very receptive to it. They wanted to know about this. It's not something that was they were there to have it beaten into them just to get a grade. And um, they were as excited about finding out what's out there and how we fit into it uh, as, as we are as amateur astronomers. So uh, it, it was a rather pleasant experience uh, working with that. And of course, um, all of my presentations, you know, at all the conventions I go to, uh, it, it's I'm, I'm there to instruct in some form or another, and uh, having a uh, a happy, receptive audience is uh, is always a big plus. It uh, makes makes the job go much easier. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. always self conscious right. when I'm talking in front of a bunch of people, but uh, uh, when they're a receptive audience, the flow goes well, and uh, 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 it just comes out of me a lot better. I'm not intimidated by them. They're not intimidated by me. Uh, we're just there having a good time, sharing this stuff, walking out, understanding the universe a little bit better. It's, it's always interesting giving giving talks, especially at some of these types of events, right? Because you never know what you're walking into, like what what kind of uh, event it's been so far for people, if they're frustrated, if they're having a good time, you know, if there are other things going on right then and they just want to hurry it up or if they want to, you know, I've gone in certain talks that were supposed to be 15 minutes and an hour and a half later, people are still asking yep. questions and other ones you think <laughs> it's going to be the kind of thing where they're going to want you there all day. And 15 minutes later, they're like, oh, there's like a balloon ride outside. that's about to happen. We got to get out to it's like, oh, cool. Hmm. You know, which well, is we, fine. Uh, to, the ones I go to, we try to, uh, keep things a little bit more organized and uh, and uh, uh, the, the one that does irritate me are the multiple uh, 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 multiple path things where 
where there was various speakers and they're supposed to synchronize and end about the same time. Because if you want to go from point A to point B, uh, you don't want to go over there and find out that uh, your talk went so long that you're walking in halfway through the other one. So go through a great deal of efforts to make sure that uh, uh, I stay within my, the proper timelines. And if I'm helping run a, a, a uh, convention, uh, pretty much cracked a whip on on the speakers and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, do things like turn the lights on five minutes ahead before it's all over with. You, dude, you're going to end this on time. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that's just my way of doing it. But I understand what you're going through because uh, the one over in in uh, Hall A goes long, and uh, everybody's coming over from Hall B waiting to for the next talk to start, and uh, they're still chattering away about something and not shutting down. It's just not right. Uh, that's not, not something uh, that I'm a big fan of. Yeah. I generally just try to kind of entertain myself because you never know what you're getting into anyway. So I just, I just say whatever I really kind of want to at the moment. And I always, I always start the talks with, look, I'm going to go ahead and warn you, this is going to be a bumpy ride right here. Um, everything that's about to happen is probably going to be uncomfortable for both of us. You know, well, but, I never uh, have a script either. I, I, <laughs> I have a series of pictures and I can yeah. give the same talk twice and never say the same thing. Yeah, I think it's better that way. You know, sometimes I don't look at the, um, you know, the presentation that's been made until. So, like, I see it for the first time when I'm actually giving the talk. So, it's, <laughs> you know, it just uh, it keeps it interesting, keeps me on, keeps me on my toes. And, you know, then I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm going to learn about what I'm about to say, too, right here with everyone. <laughs> Let's learn this together, everyone. Let's, yeah. Let's learn this together. This is going to be yeah, exciting. Well, yeah, just, it keeps it just fun tap, that way. tapping into your inner encyclopedia and uh, hope that uh, it's well, up to Well, experts can do that, can't they? I mean, they yep. can, you know, if, if you know enough about your subject, you can do that. Well, that's why you're there. They wouldn't invite you there if you uh, uh, already weren't recognized as knowing something about the field and has something to contribute. Uh, uh, otherwise you're not, you're not going to be on the stage. That's right. That's right. You'll be listening. <laughs> so let me ask you, how'd you become such a uh, good friends with Don Pettit? I can't remember the exact first time we met, but it was by email. It was after my uh, book Widefield Astrophotography came out and he bought a copy because he is an amateur astro- uh, astronomer oh, yeah, himself he loves it. Yeah, he loves and it. very, very much interested in photography. And then when he's on the International Space Station, you guys still communicate via email, right? Correct. Yes. Uh, whenever he flies, I'm on his uh, approved list where um, I'm allowed to contact him directly on the space station, which is phenomenal for <laughs> somebody like me. Uh, mm-hmm. Traditionally, I will... Uh, sent him a, d- a daily message um, with the Aurora forecast, um, sunspot, excuse me, just a second, <clears throat> uh, with sunspot predictions. And if there's any noctilucent clouds going on anywhere, I will let him know approximately where that's at because all three of those fields are things that he, he likes to personally research on his own time while he's in space. What is a noctilucent uh, cloud? I've never heard that. Uh, also called polar mesospheric clouds. They're... Uh, um, extremely thin, wispy clouds at, oh gosh, almost 50 kilometers altitude, extraordinary altitudes above the polar regions. And uh, they will turn a uh, uh, sunset in the polar regions into something rather spectacular because they're so high, they, they never go into uh, a shadow. 
and uh, they're they're glowing um, almost all night long, floating high up uh, the the extreme outer reaches of the atmosphere. Oh wow! So they're they're uh, primarily a phenomenon um, up in the polar regions. You don't see them down in the mid latitudes. You told us something at dinner that night about what you guys had planned. Something about like, didn't you have a laser or a light of some kind that you were? Well, yeah, yeah. On his first um, expedition six um, flight, uh, he was up there. Was supposed to be there for uh, four months, but it turned into six because Columbia went down. Um, came up with the idea of uh, what if at a star party, everybody had like at one of these million candle power flashlights, Q-beams, and we all simultaneously shone it on the space station as it was coming over, would Don be able to see us from the Earth? Well, the uh, on his first flight, he uh, uh, the only time that uh, such a thing could have been scheduled was within hours of when he was returning to Earth. So uh, couldn't do it. Uh, wasn't going to burden him with that. He had his hands full as, enough as it is coming back aboard a Soyuz instead of on the uh, uh, space shuttle. Right. So for uh, his uh, second long duration flight, we had a number of opportunities and uh, got it all lined up where um, I uh, worked with a uh, advertising searchlight company here in um, San Antonio, uh, the natural enemy of astronomers. We've seen these searchlights sweeping the sky at night, and you go over yeah. there, and they're like the opening of a shopping mall. They got these big Hollywood yep. searchlights circling around, like well, the they Batman were my signal, right? <laughs> right. Well, they were my friend in this case, and uh, talked to the owner, and uh, they became very intrigued about the idea, and uh, let me use two of their um, what they call ad lights, AD. L-I-G-H-T. Uh, they're, they're fairly small. Uh, you think of searchlights as these big monster things like, you know, the, the Siege of London, where they got the searchlights, you know, looking for uh, the bombers in the sky. Uh, but no, Those these, big arc lamps. Right. The, these ad lamps, uh, ad lights are fairly small. Uh, they're about 24 inches in, uh, wide uh, uh, in a bucket, about maybe 30 inches, and mounted on a little uh, uh, vertical fork mount. Uh, look very much like a fat little schmidt cassegrain telescope, uh, all TAS mount. And uh, amazingly, these things plug into a normal wall outlet. They only take 10 amps, but they put out 1.8 billion, with a B, lumens. Extraordinarily bright. Uh, we selected a place north of about 50 miles north of San Antonio to be away from the rest of the city. And uh, Don was waiting for us. He knew we were going to do this at a certain time, a uh, certain pass. And uh, as soon as he rose above the horizon, we shined the lights on him and just kind of practiced tracking the space station for a few seconds, uh, two of the lights. And then uh, once he got about 15 degrees above the horizon, we occulted the lights with a giant piece of plywood. And we'd blink them on, blink them off blink them on and off throughout the entire pass. Well, it turned out that Don saw us almost immediately you know, <laughs> uh, when, when uh, we turned the lights on and he was 900 miles away. So this has to be some sort of world record for uh, the longest distance for an individual light bulb to be seen from point A to point B. 900 was, miles. Yeah, I think you win. <laughs> and uh, we also had uh, the backup plan, the laser, 
turned out that uh, when we were occulting the light, uh, we had uh, this 200 milliwatt blue laser. Uh, wish we had had a one watt green, but uh, yeah. this is what we could get at the so time. You could have just, you know, you were looking to burn a hole in the side of the ISS, is what you wanted to do. Uh, well, up there, the uh, the laser beam is about a mile wide by the time it hits it. However, it's traveling five miles a second, so it's a yeah. tough target to hit. So uh, we uh, yeah. mounted the laser on a uh, um, kind of a fake gun stock, um, propped it up on this tripod thing, and put a scope sight on it. And uh, one of our uh, good South Texas hunters who has experience with this kind of setup, uh, manned the darn thing. And he managed to keep it centered on that station well enough that when the, the uh, searchlights were blocked and turned off, he could still see that blue laser. So, uh, so he did see that as well. He did see that both. Yes. We have pictures uh, that Don took from the space station of the ground and, uh, you could clearly see the bright search lights, and then when they're off, a dimmer light would we were uh, at the same location. <laughs> this would have so, been uh, so hard for you to explain to the uh, SWAT team that shows up when you've got this gun <laughs> with a laser and a scope. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's why we're on private property. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can tell you from dealing with New York, uh, in, in New York City and Times Square, when they came after us for setting up telescopes, they don't understand um, astronomy projects. And they, they probably, and we didn't have guns attached to ours. So, yeah, you're lucky you got away with that one. Yeah. Well, yeah. the, the all, cool thing all these is, barrels. Yeah. Cool thing is, Don saw us. So, yeah, that is the, yeah. And the space station commander as well. Uh, I forgot what the fellow's name was, but they were both in the cupola looking and uh, Don snapping pictures. and The things you could do when you know an astronaut in the ISS. That's really cool. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, Don's an interesting guy, too. He has all kinds of fun things, fun stories to tell as well. We had a great night with well, him. Well, the there's, there's the right stuff kind of astronaut that's the the fighter jock test pilot, uh, uh, you know, gone out there and stuck his neck into the jaws of death flying God knows what, you know. At, uh, and then there's the uh, uh, then there's people like Don, who I call a natural-born spaceman. Uh the early astronauts, uh, a lot of them, uh, they, they wanted to go up, get the technical part done, get back down on the ground. Don wants to go up there and explore. Uh, he, he, he is at home in space. That's where he wants to be. That's, that's where he uh, uh, does his, his best research, his, his best thinking, his best creativity. Uh, he's he's a very unusual fellow. I call him the natural born spaceman. Yeah, he is. He is an unusual. He's an awesome guy. I was so blown away by Don. Even just after that one night, you know, he just he's just like, hey, I just want to go out and let's go shoot guns. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we've we've done All that. Right. In fact, uh, <laughs> uh, a, a little little told tale that uh, will get spread around now that I'm admitting it. But uh, and probably the only person that's ever been shot twice by an astronaut. And uh, you've been yeah, shot we at the rifle range. Yeah. Uh, you know, shooting steel targets, you know, the, the gongs, uh, have you ever mm -hmm. fired on those? Uh, well, um, a certain amount of the uh, uh, jacket of the bullet bounced back and hit me in the chest. Two shots later, another one hit me in the cheek. And I said, Don, we got to back up a little bit. 
<laughs> Dude, you just shot me twice, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not cool, bro. No. No, but <laughs> not cool, bro. If, if bro, I'm have, so bummed you're right gonna now. Have a claim to fame. You keep shooting me. You keep you're shooting have a claim me, man. To fame. <laughs> Try not to take this personal, but yeah. Well, we settle our differences over a cold beer. So Don's a pretty decent shot then. Oh yeah, hit you twice uh, in the same he, day. Yeah, his um, his father was national rifle champion, and it rubbed off on him because uh, at a rifle range, two hundred yards, uh, I've got to lay prone and uh, be very careful to hit targets that he is standing and uh, and 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 shooting and hitting them just as good. So uh, uh, he's an excellent, very excellent shot. He uh, has a small pistol range at his home well while we're on the topic of astronauts and you and i and you wrote a book uh on the called the superpower space race and yeah, so back in 1994 right and i'd like while i have some questions about that book too uh, while we're on the topic of astronauts and and the u.s uh role in human spaceflight right now my first question is do you think don 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 is an active astronaut he's on the active astronaut role yes he's um, do you think he'll to get to again? fly again yes and what do you think of our current state of affairs with respect to human spaceflight, uh, depending on the Russians to get us up there, for example, depending, uh, you know, the, the, the future of going to the moon and then Mars? And, you know, what is your opinion on our current human spaceflight effort? Well, let's just say that if I were the boss, it would be done a little bit differently, but I'm not. Um, it, it's yeah. well, we, we'd all, I think, we're like, yeah. it's it's just been a sad state of affairs that uh, a, a massive stagnation for uh, a long time. Uh, shuttle never lived up to its promise, and when it no. when it started killing people, NASA got cold feet again. It's just like when Apollo thirteen blew up, uh, Congress couldn't kill the rest of the Apollo program fast enough. They they just got no guts to go out there and explore. Yeah, but it's got to be more than just being risk averse. I mean, yeah, I mean, but let's face it, NASA, the, the shuttle became, it was supposed to be a cheap way to get things into orbit. Instead, it became the most expensive way to get things in orbit. True. Uh, and and that, that came out of all of this, this these catastrophes, I think, because they were, they were very much, you know, safety has to be number one, and it's not cheap to be safe. So I think a lot of the expense from the space shuttle came from those the, those disasters and the lives that were lost. But, well, it's not uh, cheap, not it didn't cheap have to, to recover from that. Exactly. So I get that NASA kind of overreacts, that it kind of, that does uh, too much, you know, one way, maybe, I don't know. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. If you yeah, thought that we were, we're going back to the moon someday and someday people are going to die doing it. That's just accept it. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's the same, it's same with aviation. If we, uh, if we banned all airplanes after the first crash, we'd still be in horse-drawn carriages. So uh, um, it, it's just the price of progress. And there are brave people who are willing to go out there and, and take those steps. And it's it's going well, to be done eventually. It's just probably not going to happen within my lifetime. Yeah. Now, your book outlines and tells the story of the competition between the superpowers with regard to going to the moon, Mars, and Venus. You so you sort of uh, focused on the inner solar system there. Yeah. Uh, what is your What are your thoughts now about the competition? Now there's a different competition going on. We have, you know, we have three different space billionaires maybe more, but I don't know if three for sure. Yeah. Um, 
that are competing to get there. What do you think of that competition and who's your favorite space billionaire? Well, just for sheer flamboyance, of course, uh, Elon's got to take the, uh, uh, take the front stage for uh, uh, being a favorite. Uh, but uh, Bezos is definitely a, uh, He's my guy. He's getting some stuff done, but uh, he, he's, yeah. he's just not the guy to get up there and, and be, like I said, flamboyant about it. Uh, Richard Branson, he's maybe a little overly flamboyant, but uh, uh, Musk gets the job done. He says, "I'm going to do well, this." It's got to be more about that, though. I mean, who do you think has who do you think has the most uh, most likely plan of getting humans back in space from from a commercial perspective? Um. Are they, are they all equally likely, or is I, one, one well? Maybe? Well, they're all they're all going to get it done, but they're going to be in uh, oh, think di- so? different things. Branson will get tourists up there, uh, probably within the year. Uh, Musk will be uh, uh, pressing his uh, Starship, uh, and um, uh, Bezos is going to be uh, flying the new Shepard and the new. Uh, uh, I mean, the new Glenn and the uh, uh, new Armstrong monstrous rockets and uh, transporting goods. Uh, equipment uh, people to the moon they're all going to be involved in this it's not a uh, one winner will take all uh, this this is too broad of a uh, of a platform to to uh, rely on a single winner and say okay you're going to get all the beans uh, yeah i guess it won't come down to that but i guess no. i was wondering about the best approach uh overall in getting it getting it done. Um, you're right about the flamboyance of, of Elon Musk. And I, I wonder that's a blessing and a curse, I think, especially <laughs> when dealing with space. But, but the reason I like Bezos is that he's try He's, he is touting infrastructure first. Now I'm like, I'm one of the guys, I want to get your thoughts on this. I'm one of the people who actually thinks NASA's on the right track with this gateway, uh, project that's going to be in cislunar space and it's going to serve as a platform to get us to the moon and then build technologies that'll ultimately get us to mars i think that's the way to go don't just go to mars no uh do this other stuff first and that's why bezos is my guy because he wants to do the same thing he says and as an example he could never have built amazon were it not for the u.s postal service uh federal express could not have or and federal express and all the other places and these people uh, businesses could never have gotten off the ground had there not been an air traffic control system already in place. Uh, it's a network of airports throughout the country in which to operate. True. So infrastructure is huge, and it opens up these these opportunities for other companies to make a lot of money. And so that's why I think he's on the right. He's got the. It's not sexy and it's not flashy, but it's what's required to make commercial uh, commercial space. I think re- a reality. Well, you have got to got to have got to have a destination. Yes. Uh, uh, and there's uh, plenty of destinations, but we got to have the technology and the ability to get there too. And so, well, by, I think by, that by this, destination, by, I mean a place to live when you get there. Uh, oh, uh, right. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we're not <laughs> That's gonna, a different issue. Yeah, we're not. We're not going to fly off to Mars and then boom, land there and say, "Oh, this is cool." You know, we're getting along fine. No, if we do that, we're going to find bodies up there. Uh, we got to learn how to live long term in a harsh, harsh space environment doing it on the moon. The space station is not a a, 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 a planetary body. Uh, it is a, a different environment than the moon or Mars. We do not yet even know how it'll live on the moon. We stopped going no, to the moon no, we before don't. we before we got to that stage. Uh, I know that's what people forget. You know, we haven't even done the moon yet. Not right, anyhow. Yeah, yeah. And we stayed so for three days and left. 
locate. Let's, <laughs> was well, that let's the see what it's like to stay days? there a month. Yeah. That's the longest the one. The longest stay was three days. I didn't know that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So uh, let's figure out how to stay there a month. We got a month down good. Okay. Let's let's shoot for six months. Well, Doing they did the a pretty let's decent make road trip, right? They did then, a decent road trip. Yeah, it would. <laughs> Once you can do and none that. none of this is outside of Earth's magnetosphere. That's what worries me the most is that, you know, we've got plenty of, you know, the ISS is cocooned still where it is. It, you know, we just have no experience other than those three days uh, on the moon uh, outside of the Earth's magnetosphere. And that really, I think, needs to be looked at closer. Yeah, if we have a, a something even near a Carrington event on the sun and it uh, and it, it passes by the moon while there's people there if they're not thoroughly burrowed underground they're dead so there, there, yeah, there's exactly. so, so many things we need to uh, master before we even dream of going to Mars but uh, I'm glad to hear you say that I, I I think it's easy to get swept up in this dream and yeah, I, I yeah. think Elon Musk is very inspiring. But hold on a minute. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot we don't know. Yeah, with a little way station up here a quarter million miles away that uh, where we can learn how to do this right. Without... I think it makes perfect sense to do that. What do you think is done. right now? Because <clears throat> you're, still, you're still an amateur astronomer, right? Like you're still uh, doing this stuff as well. You're still taking pictures of the moon. Well, and... um, nobody's paying me very much for it. So, yeah, you, that's the definition of amateur. <laughs> sure. Sure. And so what do you think is the most exciting thing? Like, what has you excited? And what would you tell people that were trying to get into this to get them excited about uh, astrophotography? Uh, the ease of which you can do constellation and Milky Way photography now, the ease of which you can do really high definition images of the moon and the pla brighter planets. Uh, the astrophotography isn't all uh, grinding away for hours uh, high focal lengths on small, tiny galaxies. Uh, there, there, there's such wide vistas out there that can be recorded with a family camera uh, nowadays that, that are very exciting. and uh, It's very accessible and easy. $300 uh, a star adventure and, and, your, uh, and your family camera um, give you hours and hours of fun under the Milky Way. I use a star adventure too. And what that is for people that don't know, it's just this, it's a, <clears throat> a miniature tracking mount that you can just put on a standard tripod. So you don't have to go out and buy like a huge heavy tripod, just put it on a regular photographic tripod and it does, um, it will track. So it moves the exact rate the earth spins in the opposite direction. Right. So, you, so you don't have any star trails. You can right. take you can long multi-minute exposures without yeah. uh, without star streaks, right? And they're they're cheap too. They're they're not expensive at all. I think what three four hundred bucks gets you into it. Yeah, and yeah, definitely. And, and uh, uh, you can do amazing lunar work now too with uh, uh, a camera and telescope combination that cost under two thousand uh, dollars. For for a number of years, I was using a, a seven inch Maxudov and a uh, um, Skyrus camera, well, granted, the mount, I'm not including the mount, but the telescope and camera uh, combination uh, that was actually doing the imaging under $2,000. Uh, put it on top of an advanced VX mount or something similar. Um, mm -hmm. um, you got a, 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 an instrument that allows you in your backyard to take better pictures of the moon than the professionals did back during the Apollo era when they were trying to figure out what this green cheese is really made out of. We yeah. do better now than they did with a, with the best telescopes, 
best equipment in the world. You know, what's funny is I, I just set up the kind of system you're talking about. I just, so I just pulled a, a wide field system for myself. It's a, a little QHY camera. So it's a small camera cooled on a telescope that's like the size of a, I mean, a little bit bigger than a Coke can. I mean, this thing is tiny, tiny. It's a little Borg scope. And then, you know, William Optics has one called the Red Cat or the White Cat, those two that are about yeah. the same size. And um, then the mount, if the mount's 400 bucks, the scope is six, 700 bucks. And then the camera, another 500 bucks, You're like 1500 bucks for a really, really high end imaging system. And then you throw a triad filter on it and you can do deep space from your backyard with exactly. a system under $2,000. It's nuts. Yeah. Well, I've, I've heard a lot of people fuss at me. Well, the stuff costs a lot of money. And then I, I look at them and says, okay, how much did your hunting lease cost you this year? Right. Um, how much did your bass boat cost? How much did that, that hunting rifle that you just had to have or, or that, that uh, uh, bass fishing outfit? Uh, stuff like that could easily cost many times more than what we sink into uh, the very modest equipment we use in astronomy to produce these these really stunning results. When, uh, of course, uh, that's not even counting what people go out and just look. Uh, not everybody's an astrophotographer. Uh, people, some people just like to look. And uh, uh, a little 8 or 10-inch Dobsonian will uh, keep you occupied all summer long. Well, Robert, I know that uh, that you said that you know you've got to keep this relatively short today, and I appreciate how much time you've given us already. Um, well, is there we can repeat that you... it sometime if you wish, but uh, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Uh, I didn't even get a chance to talk about the Texas Star Party or get in depth in your book, so yeah, I'd love to well, talk uh, again. We'll have to do a round two. Yeah, uh, yes. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, if we could kick it off a little bit earlier and on a Friday, uh, that would. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah, that that'll help out a lot. Because I'm I'm off on Fridays now. Uh, uh, I have now that I'm uh, as old as I am. They allow me uh, three day weekends at work, so uh, I I can uh, get back with you on another Friday and a little bit earlier. We can chat a lot longer. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you for spending time with us on your day off then. And yeah. uh, I, I want to thank I want to thank all of you guys for for listening. And on behalf of Robert Reeves and Dustin Gibson. Thanks for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Oh, it's been a pleasure chatting with y'all. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.